Film Trace. This is a new podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception is an exploration of a new release film and what people are thinking about it. In our pilot episode, we have chosen the new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods. Uh, Let's dive right into the conception of this film. Chris, do you want to take it away? Yeah, Dan. uh, Let's start with where the idea for this film starts stemmed from with a a filmmaker like spike lee it's always interesting to see where the seeds of his ideas begin um, because unlike some other auteurs he he's very open about you know what he's trying to do uh obviously the major uh criticism um lodged against him is that he's didactic he creates polemics and that he uh and that's some see that as a weakness. But I think uh, as the New York Times said in their profile of him a few years ago when Netflix uh, released his uh, 10 episode series adaptation of She's Gotta Have It, uh, the culture is starting to catch up with him. Right. He is yeah. a guy that uh, maybe 10 years ago was out of what many saw as like out of touch. Um, but uh, with uh, race being more in the forefront of American discourse, it, he's more needed, I think, in the uh, landscape of film than ever before and so where this movie began was actually out of all places originally a uh, script by the writers of the rocketeer the <laughs> little the, the little remembered though I, I no i don't think it's little remembered no, i just think it's it, it's an age thing i think if you're an yeah. elder millennial or older like a gen xer you're gonna remember the rocketeer if you're under the age of 30 you have no idea what we're talking about exactly that's probably apt yeah, yeah. um but yeah it's, it's it's such a time capsule of a movie it, it was it centered on a world war one era like experiment i think it was world war ii but like pre world war ii yeah, yeah okay it's a dude with a rocket on his back it's a totally terrible film but like <laughs> very rememberable everybody remembers it who saw it as a yeah kid. i mean i feel like our whole yeah our whole generation we're uh kind of pretty dead center millennials and uh it seems like the the concept of a jetpack was like as futuristic Crazy. Right, like that. What that was like our our version of the hoverboard of Back it was to like the Future, flying cars. Yeah, that's all the same exactly. Stuff. Um, so the so the two guys that wrote that movie wrote this script. What was it called? The Last Tour. Yeah, Something the Last like Tour. That? Yeah, yeah. Tour. So these guys uh, created the script, and then somehow I believe John Killick, the producer of Defy Bloods, as well as several other Spike Lee films, as well as uh, another huge slate of films uh, both with big and small budgets both successes and failures he's kind of a hollywood mainstay uh he created everything from free state of jones to the hunger games um he got a hold of it and then spike lee realized that you know he wanted to do a vietnam movie he had done uh, world war ii with uh, the um very uh, probably one of the worst films of his career miracle of saint anna uh in 2008 and he uh, wanted to follow that up with a Vietnam movie. And it makes sense because uh, he's always talked very highly of a very particular brand of war film. Um, he's always been a huge uh, proponent of Francis Ford Coppola. They've been best buds. And it's clear that uh, obviously the key influence in this movie is both uh, Apocalypse Now as well as The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which isn't so much a war film as much as a treasure hunt film, an adventure movie, and he is mashing them up, which is what Spike Lee is best known for, taking genres and mashing up just as much as he's known for his uh, racial politics in his movie. So where did it go from there, Dan? How did this uh, script get uh, tangled up into uh, a very 
turned from something that was very much a kind of generic war movie. Yeah. Those guys, the Rocketeer guys, they also made like a 2013 straight to DVD movie with uh, Tom Berenger or somebody. I forget who. Oh, sniper? <laughs> no, that's Sniper. <laughs> um, but no, it's interesting but, too. A couple things that, you know, in terms of how it was sort of kicked off. Uh, the original director attached to this was Oliver Stone. That's right. So they mm-hmm. had they had shopped it to Oliver Stone. The producer did, uh, and Oliver Stone, of course, made you know two of the classic Vietnam film uh, films, uh, Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July, which I both love. Um, and I think he's want to go back for a third time here. But the film was centered around a, a white main cast, uh, and then Oliver Stone essentially kind of ghosted the producer. Uh, and I believe um, the producer brought it to Spike Lee because uh, one of Spike Lee's favorite films is The Treasure of Sierra Madre. And right. so I think they thought that he would really be into this. Um, and what's interesting, too, about, you know, getting this made and everything coming out of The Black Klansman, which was a commercial and uh, critical success, uh, you know, he, uh, Spike Lee did win the Oscar for adapted screenplay. I think his first win, he had a lifetime Oscar a few years ago. This is his first sort of big win. Right. Um, coming off of that, you know, you would think that um, it would be easy to get this film made, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. But he shopped it around to essentially every studio, and they all said no. And there was a great <laughs> line uh, in one of the interviews he was doing for this press tour uh, for uh, The Five Bloods that basically said, Netflix was my last stop. Like, there yeah. wasn't anywhere else to go with this film. And uh, I find that really fascinating because you would think someone like Spike Lee, uh, and maybe this goes to what you're talking about in terms of kind of not being the man of the moment uh, over the last 10 years or so, but Black Klansman sort of being uh, a a turning point for him in his career. But this was greenlit before Black Klansman. And so Netflix sort of, they really believed in what he was doing. Uh, and I believe he the day after he got his Oscar, he flew out to Thailand to start mm-hmm. filming this thing. Uh, and so I thought that that was like it, it just sort of it's illuminating that someone with the stature of Spike Lee, you know, who has been a successful filmmaker for, what, 30 years now and with yep. such stature can't get a major studio to make a movie like this. And it kind of like goes back to like, you know, this this podcast comes from the ashes of the Wild Lion podcast. Uh, which I've been doing for what four years, uh, and then you recently joined on to sort of um, to add some support to the podcast. And uh, one of the things that we looked at a lot is that how movies are produced and created, and the money side of things. Do you think that the money wasn't actually there for this to make a movie about you know African American Vietnam vets going back? Do you think it would have been a box office success? Or do you think it, you know, every other studio was right in saying, oh, let's pass on this. It's not going to do well. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking back at this and uh, he's had a pretty steady stream of movies with around 15 million dollar budgets. Both Black Klansman and Chirac are reported to have 15 million dollar budgets. They're his 2018 and 2015 um, projects uh, in reverse succession. And uh, before that, he made a very small film called The Sweet Blood of Jesus, uh, a vampire horror movie that basically didn't make it anywhere uh for distribution and uh Bo and Chirac uh only made two and a half million so it was a huge loss yeah mm-hmm. and if this is being greenlit before all the success of Black Klansmen then it kind of makes sense that people are looking at this as a money thing but also it is kind of unfair uh thinking about the 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 way in which uh you have somebody who uh while definitely 
reproved himself with the success, both like you said, critically and financially, of Black Klansmen. But he all like it's not like his cultural cachet has like skyrocketed. It's just been re re uh, refurbished, if you would. Right? It's not yeah, like something. Exactly. It's not like he's the a different Spike Lee than he was. Uh, you know, before Black Klansmen came out. I think it's just it's a really nice way to as Spike Lee probably would want. Uh, to do is give a middle finger to anybody who didn't believe in him, uh, even though his filmography is admittedly scattershot. Uh, I think even the biggest Spike Lee proponents would agree that he's had his ups and downs throughout his career. He's been nothing if not eminently masterful and watchable uh, in terms of the way in which he conducts himself on the film set and the way in which he gets people to care about what he's trying to talk about. Even though Chirac only made two and a half million dollars back in 2015, everybody was talking about it when yeah. it came out. Like It's They're an incredibly shocking and controversial movie and it's not a great movie, but <laughs> it's still it's still Spike Lee. Like it's still. Yeah. You need to you need to talk about it. You need to see it. So the fact that he couldn't get and we we have we have some uh, you know kind of uh, unreliable research about what the budget was for this movie. But the best thing that we can look at is that uh, according to the Vulture behind the scenes rundown of *The Five Bloods*, it was probably somewhere in between thirty five and forty five million, which is admittedly a heck of a lot more than uh, yeah. any movie he's made. Probably going back to 2013's *Old Boy*. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love how they got that information because like Netflix, Netflix, for some reason, will not confirm production budgets, which is like something that like a normal studio would do. I'm not sure why Netflix. Netflix is very um, secretive about viewership numbers and how much money they're spending on things. So in this case, they kind of played that card. But I love that they're like, "Eh, it's between this movie and that movie It was like Inside Man and Malcolm X, I think they said. Right. Um, Yeah. And so that kind of leads into the production of this film and sort of, you know, shooting it over mostly in Thailand. And I guess the city shots were in Ho Chi Minh City uh, in Mm -hmm. Vietnam, you know, and sort of looking at it and maybe our initial reactions to the film, especially sort of the the action part of the film, because there is a really strong action element almost it it is. And I'm not uh, a Spike Lee expert. I've seen maybe Inside Man do the right thing. That might be it. Uh, oh I've, never, I've not seen Black Klansmen. So what? I was very, I think initially, and this will be you know a little bit more on the reception part of this, the genre mashup was yes. very severe here. Um, oh, yeah. Looking at that production bu- budget and how they shot it and sort of, it was a tough shoot, it sounds like, with people fainting mm-hmm. and stuff like that. They were in the jungle. Um right. You look at that production budget between 35 and 45, and you know from you know doing the Wildland podcast what that really means in terms of making a movie does it did you think it looked like that do you think it looked well first of all did it look like a movie that cost that much and two did it look like a theatrical release that you would get from say universal or warner brothers or do you feel like it was different you know like you said this is kind of bleeding over into the reception part of it because i definitely think it depends on how you watch this movie yeah totally. uh, especially how you take those war sequences one of the most fascinating choices i think um from a production standpoint is that he made sure that the flashback scenes uh were all filmed on 16 millimeter just yeah. like coppola did for apocalypse now and so it gave it a very and it, the aspect ratio is all also uh yeah. uh more of a full screen because he i think 
he's been very clear in his press tour that he wants to remind everybody uh, how much Vietnam was the televised war. Uh, yeah. And it makes sense then to, to, to choose that kind of awkward aspect ratio and that kind of grainy uh, kind of bled out colorization as well. And uh, but then the another part of the press tour that makes me think about what's going on through Spike's head um, during those uh, action sequences, specifically the flashback ones in which, yeah. yes, if I was going to take away all context, I would say that does not look like a 40 million dollar set of action sequences however there's one or two quotes that really stand out to me from what he mentioned um in the press tour that i think really only like super nerdy film people would get and he i mean we should understand that spike lee in addition to just being like uh an expert in filmmaking he's also like one of the most well-read filmmakers like he watches everything yeah and i really love that uh even though I totally felt jarring, jarred by uh, the low budget ishness of the uh, action sequences, especially the first flashback. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. it, it it makes more sense when you realize that he is purposely poking fun at a lot of the films that I think it's Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s character makes fun of in that scene leading up to the flashback where essentially you basically have uh, the Rambos, the uh, Missing in Actions, the Chuck Norris movies, Mm -hmm. where, you know, a lot of what the the masculinity of these Vietnam vet characters that they're kind of struggling with, even as they have this deep reverence and care for each other in the group, they are definitely having these memories trying to... traumatically struggle between viewing themselves as heroes and viewing themselves as cold-blooded killers and so i think that if you look at it from that context was spike making a choice was he making a choice that was aided by the restrictions of his budget or was it somewhere in between i would i would argue since uh, spike is very much uh, a proponent of moral ambiguity in his movies he's probably uh, a proponent of leaving that open to interpretation for the viewer as well and so while it definitely comes across as not really a theatrical release um in terms of the quality of those uh, action sequences i think i want to say that he learned his lesson from miracle at saint anna which i assume yeah. you haven't seen no, I've not. right Mm-mm. but that movie he was definitely going for i mean it's right off the heels of inside man and so he was going for like the spielbergian like gloss of i do remember the, that from the trailer and stuff it had yeah that sheen like to it's it. It, I, 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 I mean, I'll, I can Google the budget here, but it's very clear that he had all the money he wanted because Inside Man was such a huge success. Yeah. And Inside Man also was his way of showing everybody like, fuck you, I can make a big budget genre movie. And so like with Five Bloods, it's like he's he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. He wants to make a genre movie, but he also wants to say everything he has to say about race in America right now. And yeah, I think no, it, absolutely. It, I mean, it's I, uh, go ahead. No, I just think that like that's that that's a hard uh, thing to hold in your head while you're watching those action sequences and trying to judge it based off of um, the quality because it definitely seems kind of shoddy. It seems, but is that on purpose? I don't know. How did you take it? I mean, it, it's tough because if it was one thing that kept going through my head with the production of this is that so he uses the multiple aspect ratios. I think someone said there's like four of them. There's four different aspect ratios, which I thought was interesting, Um, but it kind of points to um, Spike really trying to cram in a lot here and not only sort of the genre stuff, but I think the political messaging uh, here is I mean, it's so out. I mean, it's a political movie, right? I mean, you can't really view it in any other context. 
Mm-hmm. Um, sure, it's a it's a movie about the Vietnam War. Sure, it's about brotherhood uh, and about sacrifice um, and a little bit about Vietnam in general as a nation. But it's mostly about these men's experience and their political reality and lived life uh, and, and that story. Um, and as he tries to cram in more, he he does use these different sort of techniques. What I found interesting is you, you know you use the documentary sort of viewpoint early on and at the end of the film. Or even mm-hmm. shots of current day, like the Black Lives Matter scene at the end, where they give the money, the $2 million check to them. Very different viewpoints. Yep. Right? He is, I don't know if this sort of goes along with what he's done before. I don't know, maybe you can speak to Black Klansmen, but I mean, totally different styles. Uh, and when somebody mentions something like uh, the My Lai Massacre, right? Uh, one of the Vietnamese yeah. um, sort of marauders uh, mentions this, and he then cuts to different aspect ratio almost like a filmed version of that actual footage yeah. uh, and it's very graphic I mean you're talking dead kids dead women and children like lying in, in mass graves and then it cuts back to um, the scene that you're in I just found I, I liked that a lot I thought that was interesting but I could I can you know you can make the argument that like is that too jarring does that take you away from the main narrative story? Uh, and these are very clear and confident production choices that he's making. Uh, yeah. And I think when you're talking about the flashbacks and stuff like that, I'll be honest, it didn't really bother me all that much how shoddy it looked. And it yep. looked shoddy. Like I just I, I watched it for a second time today, and I noticed, especially in that first action scene, there's two things that stood out to me. Uh, and the cinematographer on this, I don't know, I forget who it was, but I know they're really good. Um, what stood out to me is the shots of the actual helicopter as they're flying yeah. uh, and then the gunfire and the gun battles and the blood splatters all CGI and mm-hmm. you know if I saw this in the theater I'd be like huh but I think there's something to the way that he's crafting the story and it's almost it's a non-traditional film right it's almost like a multimedia experience um, yeah. that's almost like used as education to really root you in the context of the story that you're seeing. Uh, and it's not just the aspect ratio of the documentarian stuff. It's also the dialogue, too, where he's very overt with exactly what he's trying to say. Um, and as somebody who, you know, loves subtle films and stuff like that, it, it, it is a little bit weird. But when you get to the end of it, I feel like, oh, this is this is really a journey that you're on. And it's because yeah. of that multiple perspective that he gives you through the production of the film and the different production uh, techniques that he's using uh, that it really sort of paints this fuller picture. I don't know. Did you kind of feel the same way about that? The way he shot oh, yeah. it and used the documentary stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you check out Black Klansman, he did that to a minor degree um, on the bookends of the film. Uh, the opening uh, has to do with uh, um, the connections between going all the way back to the uh, Birth of a Nation um, movie. And so it's a little bit of a film history lesson and then and connecting it to Trump. And then at the end of Black Klansman, no spoilers, but it does uh, end up being a uh, uh, a love letter to the protesters um, in during Charlottesville and there's intercut footage of David Duke and Heather Heyer who was the victim of that uh, um, uh, murder by vehicular homicide yeah uh, so so he 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 kind of dabbled with that um, and he did it in a very less de- uh, lesser degree in Chirac so it's like he's been on this trajectory so I have this theory anyways yeah, <laughs> about and uh, I think 
if you look at Spike's career over the past couple decades, um, first off, have you seen Twenty Fifth Hour? The I, oh, I have. Movie? Yeah. I love okay. that movie. Yeah, Absolutely it's fantastic. It. Yeah. So there was this moment in the early two thousands post 9-11 where I think more so than any other filmmaker it's very clear like he literally made a movie as a marker between his two kind of lives as a director basically I think you could pinpoint everything pre 25th hour and post 25th hour and there's of course aberrations in that like she hate me in 2004 is a kind of throwaway Anthony Mackie romantic comedy that kind of links back to some of his uh, 90s work uh, like girl six but then you look at everything else after 25th hour you got inside man his fuck you to hollywood miracle at santa his attempt at uh, doing you know a classic war film um red hook summer he is uh, and the sweet blood of jesus is him basically those were his kickstarter movies him yeah. showing that he doesn't need hollywood to create some interesting art but then he like remade the japanese film old boy uh uh in 2013 and it, it's it's a complete misfire but it's he he's he's trying to do something it's not until really Chirac and then obviously Black Klansman I think we're we, we are going to be seeing a very interesting few movies coming up after the five bloods with everything that's happened this year a lot of his press tour he's taken the time to talk about uh, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests yeah. and uh, defund the police activism uh, and it'll be very interesting especially because Black Klansman the movie that got him back on the map so to speak was a cop movie it was yeah. you know very much a movie uh, in which the protagonist was able to like spike is into five bloods like i mentioned earlier have his cake and eat it too he's able to both be a cop and also still be like a, a symbol of black power so it'll be very interesting i think to see uh looking back at all of his career and how he's progressing as a movie maker, and you mentioned the cinematographer for Defy Bloods, uh, yeah. New- Newton Thomas Siegel. Yeah. Um, I think there's, it, I mean, I, I see people talking about this movie when referencing Defy Bloods' influence, but I don't think it's any more evident than it is that, I mean, he picked the cinematographer. He usually works with Ernest Dickerson, who's amazing in his own right, but he picked Newton Thomas Siegel for this movie, I think, because he was the cinematographer for David O. Russell's The Three Kings back in 99. Gotcha. And, yeah. And that was exactly what Spike was trying to do, except from a very different angle and about a very different war. But essentially, it's a genre movie that also has a lot of things to say. It's like the one of the most interesting anti-war movies, I think, of uh, the end of the 20th century. And uh, to make it to, to make that oblique connection, like I, I just love the, the hard headedness, the confidence of making a choice like that, because this guy's also made a bunch of crap. <laughs> he's yeah. also shot. He's also shot everything from um, pump up the volume back in the 80s to uh, Valkyrie and Leap Year um, and also made other really great movies like Drive. So like he wants he he is so committed to combining genre work with political work and it's just it's so exciting to watch i wasn't bored for a second no no i wasn't bored at all ever and it's two and a half hours long i mean this thing is not short Mm -hmm. um i will say this though like i think in moments uh there were moments especially with paul's character um near the end where he's sort of in spoiler alert if you haven't seen it we're probably going to give a little bit away uh Mm -hmm. He is having that sort of breakdown uh, after he got, goes off on his own, where it is just some of just beautiful acting. I yeah. mean, just gorgeous. Uh, and the real, and I think that's a Spike Lee sort of trademark, that real close up face on view 
where you get the camera the right up in the front. Yeah. And that was just wonderful. But then you kind of go back a little bit to other parts of the film. You're like, how does this all trace together? Mm-hmm. And it sort of mm-hmm. does it trace together. It does, but it's pretty tenuous sometimes. Because sure. you're kind of, you know, you, you're looking at that scene and that cinematography and the way that that film looks. And it almost seems like there's a part of me that felt like if this was like a five part Chernobyl like limited series, he could have done so much more. And that sort of jumping around tends to work a lot better uh, in that format, mm. uh, even if the time was essentially doubled for the, the content. Uh, and so I thought that was a little bit sort of jarring with that. Um, and I think I wonder if Spike Lee is going to go the route of Terrence Malick. And sort of just start spitting out films left and right. <laughs> uh, I hope not, because I don't think Terrence Malick has made a good film since The New World. Uh, but uh, that's only my viewpoint. Uh, let's dive into what people are thinking about this. Um, yeah. So it premiered uh, Friday, June 12th, this last Friday on Netflix. Uh, I believe this is his first Netflix movie, right? Yes, if you don't count the 10-part series adaptation of She's Gotta Have It from 2017. Gotcha. But he also did... Chirac was Amazon. I think Amazon Correct. films? Correct. Okay, yes. Good. But it also played in theaters. So this was supposed to be released in theaters. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, I believe it was supposed to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, where he was going to be uh, one of the head judges. Uh, I think yeah, he's going to get... Yeah, get... the first black ju- uh, head juror. Oh, yeah. And I think that's going to get pushed out to next year now. Um, and so I think on the initial release, when you're looking at the critical stuff as it was coming in, very, very positive across the board. Uh, so right now it sits at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 81 on Metacritic, which is very high. Anything in the 80s on Metacritic is really good. Yeah. Um, we don't have any of the traditional cinema score tools or anything like that because it wasn't released in theaters. Uh, on Letterboxd, 3.8 out of 5, which is very good. Um, and then some random stuff um, like Reddit. I looked at the R movies has a discussion board. It's not scientific or anything like that. Uh, but it's just your average Reddit user um, who goes on that board, uh, film nerds, uh, 7 out of 10 uh, on there. Mm-hmm. And then the audience score is a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, that's not verified audience score, uh, but it's just a general survey of people who've seen the film. Including um, people that probably you know watched it for 10, 20 minutes on Netflix and then correct. decided it wasn't for yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what I mean, what do you make of this, of these critical responses? I mean, I think that it's pretty much universal. Maybe not universal praise, um, but high praise pretty much across the board with some few pretty loud detractors, I would say. Um, yeah. how, are you, how do you make make this? Well, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of choices that Spike made for Black Klansmen, which uh, for, for uh, comparison's sake, um, got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, he was really trying to kind of hone in and focus and for this movie, which understandably, I mean, you do not have kind of the the mental trauma breakdown, like borderline, uh, I'm not a psychologist, but borderline schizophrenia, especially with Paul's character that happens towards the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, I, I definitely think he was trying to match that with his visceral visual style. And I also think that he, he's probably, uh, there. there's a lot more anger in this movie, I think, than there was in Black Klansman. And there was a lot of anger in Black Klansman. And so I think that uh, that automatically is going to turn people off. And like you said, kind of the, the tangentialness of uh, some of the plot threads, um, 
in which he was once again trying to have his cake and eat it too by going off on those kind of uh, Looney Tunes moments. Like the one thing that stood out for me, like so I don't come across as a total fanboy, is I really <laughs> do think that uh, the 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 three the French people, uh, the lamb group that is yeah. uh, trying to search for minds, that definitely felt kind of out of nowhere, especially like the 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 romantic tension between. Um, uh, Jonathan Major's character and the 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 lead heady uh, woman, yeah, yeah. Um, that that was a little ridiculous. Though I will say Jonathan Major's performance was almost just as good as he's fantastic. Delroy Lindo's. He's so amazing. Good. I love yeah. him. Um, but I I do think that because of that kind of uh, effusiveness, that disparateness of uh, Five Bloods, it makes sense that it's a little a little uh, lower rated. But I will say I think if Five Bloods came out before Black Klansman it wouldn't near, be nearly as universally praised. I think it definitely, he's on the upswing. Uh, there's a huge discussion going on in the world right now yeah. that makes Five Bloods vital watching. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's interesting that like a movie that uh, like Chirac, which is definitely not as good, but definitely has a lot of things to say about race and gang violence and um, uh, misogyny and uh it it, it it did not get the universal acclaim because it's coming off the heels of Old Boy, which was a complete misfire. So it's yeah. interesting to see uh, how how he's been he's been well buoyed by the success of Black Klansman. Yeah, and it's sort of in terms of its success on Netflix. I might check today; it's number one. Right, it's the yeah. number one piece of entertainment. That's all movies, all TV. And I checked on Friday, and I didn't really see it in the top ten. I think it's just taken a day or two to people sort of maybe that. I don't know how they compute that, but maybe it takes 24 hours or something. Um, but yeah, I think yesterday you have a list. Of it was third. So it's doing quite well um, in what just w- with general audiences. What I found interesting, too, with the sort of the critical response. And I've read a ton of uh, Rotten Tomato reviews and Reddit reviews of it is that to me, there seems to be this pretty wide distinction between the two viewpoints of, yes, this is a good film. And I didn't really like it that much. I don't think it's good. And that distinction is between do you buy into the political and historical context of what he's twi- trying to say? Mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. you if you buy into that and you see that and you feel it, you're going to let all of the sort of weird um, plot juxtapositions. The script isn't super strong. Let's, like he said, there's a whole swath of characters that don't matter. Um, there's a lot of tricks that he pulls out from a pop perspective that don't necessarily work. But uh, if you viewed it without the historical, political, social context, especially right here now in the United States, I could see those being detractors enough to say, hey, that wasn't really good. But with the critics and the viewers who say, hey, this is an important film because it talks about uh, an experience of a group of people that does not get talked about hardly at yep. all, especially yep. uniquely to the African-American soldiers that served in Vietnam that came back to a country in a world that didn't sort of respect them at all. Um, there's so much there. And he also weaves in all of the Vietnamese issues yeah. that are, are part of that as well about the global war on communism and why we were, why were they even there in the first place? Um, and there's uh, there's a really good exchange um, right when they're about to go off uh, into the jungle where their uh, guide, Vin, talks about how Ho Chi Minh is their Uncle George and how, you know, like Ho Chi Minh, who's, you know, in, in America up until probably about 10 years ago, completely vilified as this communist whatever who took over Vietnam. Right. 
uh, yeah. as a as an evil sort of villain, but to them he was a freedom fighter. And yep. to those five soldiers, Malcolm X was a freedom fighter. And so like there's all these different perspectives that I think um, what he does so well, what Spike Lee does so well, is he gives you this total view that is it's not a polemic at the end of the day. It right. feels like a polemic, but a polemic is usually one sided, one perspective beat you over the head. And I didn't feel that here at all. This felt no, almost no. like a chorus of yeah. different viewpoints. I mean, we didn't um, even mention the fact that the default protagonist is a Trump voter and wears a MAGA yeah, hat. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's 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 so many different layers to it. Um and I feel like, uh, I, but I will say this about the reception of it. You know, if if you asked me, hey, is this a good film, like technically written, all that sort of stuff, I'd be like, eh, it's okay. But is it an important piece of art? I would say absolutely yes. And if like, does that distinction make sense to you? Yeah. yeah uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think that ultimately at the end of the day here, and uh, I know we got to wrap this up, but I think that Spike Lee is a uniquely... Uh, singular filmmaker that in most other cases you could easily you can more easily make that distinction that you say between you know good and important but I think that the way that Lee has always worked going all the way back to do the right thing which is still you know his unheralded masterpiece uh, by and large everybody agrees it still seems like it doesn't ultimately matter right like small things that would annoy me like the uh like the the, that the group of three uh uh the the frenchman Frenchman yeah exactly like that that would bother me way more if it in a other film because it was not you have so much other like the the canvas is so huge right and it's so like you said overstuffed and yet spike uses it Use that uses that uh, brimming to the top and overflowing in such a watchable way that you can't get mad at it. Like I like I'm going to be haunted for days about many different points in this movie, and ultimately that completely negates any you know minor criticisms I have about the plot straying or the script being kind of loose and shaggy. It it just doesn't matter because it's still it's Spike Lee. He he gets to do that. Let him do it. Who who the who yeah, cares? Exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like there's a certain point in an artist's career where that confidence and that clout really hits a point where someone can do a movie like The Five Bloods. Where if someone's a you know a forty year old filmmaker, they don't have that yet, right, and right. Uh, he could just go for it and feel good doing it, and I think the end results sort of speak for themselves because it is an important film that people should see, uh, yes. and I think that's kind of that's kind of the conclusion, right? It's important, uh, it's important art that people should definitely check out. Um, that's it for our first episode of Film Trace. Uh, we're going to be back next week. We're going to talk about what the darkness, a twenty sixteen yes. American supernatural horror film. Uh, with Kevin Bacon that you probably don't remember, but it's coming out on what? Netflix? Yeah, it's coming out on Netflix this week, finally. Uh, it was very little seen in theaters and uh, is the worst-reviewed Blumhouse movie. And we're both Blumhouse fans here at Film Trace, so it'll be interesting to trace how uh, you ended up with such a dud in an otherwise uh, seemingly very competent production studio. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.